all the detective work in the world was not worth as much as a little bit of luck. And this time, the luck was all on the side of the killer. And so his behaviour was going from bad to worse and from worse to bizarre. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today we continue our intermittent serial of my first book, Cuckoo, about the Medill Haywood murders in Shepparton, the case which has become famous as the Mr Stinky case. The story so far, in February 1966, just before decimal currency was introduced, two teenagers go missing from a dance in Shepparton. Their bodies are found 16 days later down the road at Murchison East. Police quickly establish that a Mossberg 22 rifle is the most probable murder weapon, but they keep its identity secret for the time being. Now we continue the story. The bodies were found on February the 26th. By the first week of March, the investigators were in a quandary. The one thing worse than having several thousand fruit pickers and cannery workers in the district as potential suspects was the prospect of not having them. As the fruit season ended, the wandering workforce started to migrate interstate to pick up other seasonal jobs. To those police with an open mind on the murders, any one of those drifters could have been the killer. In the first week's After the bodies were found, a hundred detectives could have been kept busy systematically checking every male in the district, with anybody who refused to be fingerprinted being brought in for further questioning. But that was a pipe dream. In reality, the few homicide detectives who were available could not be posted at Shepparton for longer than two weeks at a time. The impossibility of interviewing all seasonal workers meant that the investigators had to hedge their bets. They appealed to the public, and to orchardists in particular, to report any suspicious behaviour by pickers. Meanwhile, they concentrated on interviewing and re-interviewing the friends and acquaintances of the dead pair. Abina Medill and Gary Haywood were buried on Friday, March the 4th, six days after their bodies had been found, three weeks after their deaths. They were the biggest funerals ever held in the town. By that day, Ian Urquhart had already been under siege from the police and from public opinion. He insisted on going to Abena's funeral. He asked his sister, Heather, to get him a dozen red roses and a playing card. On it he wrote, With all my love, Ian. When she saw her younger brother sign it, Heather thought, that card's going to be torn to shreds. She knew only too well that the police's widely broadcast suspicions of Ian had fed the poisonous gossip about him. Outside the church, Ian put his arm around Heather and said, you go home. And then he went to the cemetery to pay his last respects to the girl that Gossip said he'd killed. Heather tried hard to get Ian to tell her about what was happening each time he was dragged into the police station, but he seemed almost ashamed to admit what was happening to him. It got so that he was scared to come home and would borrow his father's old Volkswagen or a car from one of his friends 
and camping it by the river so that he would be harder to find. His friends knew from first-hand experience what he was going through. One of Ian's friends was Ernie Moore. Local police knew very well that Ernie was a keen shooter. They knew that he kept his rifle in the boot of his car. They knew that every day he drove the same way to work. And so it was pretty easy to stand on the road one day, pull him over, ask to look in the boot, find his rifle, which they knew was there, and then drag him down to the station to be interviewed. This is what happened. Waiting for him were three plainclothes detectives and a policewoman. One of the policemen, well known to Ernie Moore, was sitting at a table with his leg cocked casually over the corner. He greeted the boy with a friendly smile and started questioning him. Suddenly, Ernie said later, he kicked me in the shin as hard as he could. And he yelled, all right, you little bastard, which one of you shot them and where did you put the gun? Moore was an orphan who had learned to look after himself early in life and made of tougher stuff than most of the frightened teenagers that detective had been bullying. He jumped up and swung a punch, but he was pinioned by the two detectives behind him. Decades later, Ernie Moore has forgiven the detective who belted him that night, but he never forgot it. And he knew how much worse it was for his mate Ian Urquhart. And that still made him angry. Meanwhile, the police kept three things secret. The first was the identity of the Mossberg rifle. They did not reveal that they knew it was a Mossberg until a few weeks later. Secondly, they kept secret then and for nearly 20 years the fact that a small set of fingerprints had been found on Gary Haywood's car on his hot FJ Holden. They found two tiny prints that they couldn't eliminate. The third thing they kept secret was that Gary Haywood's blue-checked picnic rug was missing when his car was found. On Wednesday, March the 16th, the state government posted a $10,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the killer or killers of Abena Medill and Gary Haywood. It didn't seem to make any difference. Meanwhile, out at Gorn's farm at Ardmona, their young share farmer, Ray, had lost interest in the job. He'd become so slack that he was watering down the milk to make it look as if there was more of it. Uh, he wasn't doing his job properly. And within a matter of weeks, the Gorns sacked him. He didn't tell his wife, Leslie, that he'd been sacked, but he did start looking for another job over the border in New South Wales, another share farming job. He picked out a job at a place called Mayrung near Finlay in the Riverina, and he drove up for an interview. When he got back, he was too anxious to wait for the owners to contact him. He pestered Leslie to ring them to see if he got the job. She did ring, and he did get the job. Ray told the Gorns, his employers, that he could start at the new farm on April the 1st if they'd let him go. They obliged. Once he'd made the arrangements to move to Mayrung up over the border, Ray seemed more at ease than he had for weeks. Leslie knew they were going to a bigger place with more cows and that they would make more money. But when she spoke to him about the new farm, he said something which sounded a little out of place. 
He said Mayrung was a good place to go because it's at the back of nowhere. At the Shepparton Police Station, apart from hounding Ian Urquhart and his mates, there were a lot of dud leads on picnic rugs and Holden cars. None of them came to anything. It seemed for a while that the rifle investigation was gathering momentum. The police were correctly convinced that they were looking for the owner of a self-loading Mossberg, that is, a semi-automatic Mossberg 22 rifle. Mossbergs were a good American make of rifle. They'd been imported into Australia both by the Mossberg parent company but also by individual dealers. And it turned out, to the police's great disappointment, that they were unable to trace all the Mossbergs sold in Australia because there had been these piecemeal importations and the rifles had been sold all over the country in such a way that they thought it was impossible to trace them. They were actually wrong about that. Police around Australia had been alerted to check any semi-automatic Mossbergs that they heard of in their districts. In the Shepparton area, the search was more intense. A list of people who had bought Mossbergs from the local gun dealers was drawn up and the long process of tracing the owners and checking the weapons began. Began, but was not properly completed. Every rifle the police brought in was test-fired. The spent cases were sent to the Forensic Science section in Melbourne for comparison with the pair of shells found at the murder scene. Going public on the search for the Mossberg rifle seemed a shrewd move. It was becoming less likely every day that the police were going to discover the killer still in possession of the murder weapon. Better, then, to appeal to the public sense of outrage and encourage the possibility of people providing information secretly. That way, anyone who did not volunteer a Mossberg for testing would be likely to be pointed out to police by someone who knew they owned such a rifle. In the event, there was great public cooperation with information about Mossbergs coming from all over Australia. But the inquiry was dogged by bad luck and sloppy detective work. Eventually, 353 Mossbergs were test-fired, more in hope than expectation that something would turn up. The reality was this. In the 1960s, firearms were not registered although shooters were, and weapons were sold, swapped, won and lost in card games, taken to pay bad debts, borrowed and stolen. Of all weapons, the 22 calibre P-rifle was as common as a pocket knife and just as easy to buy new, with one important difference overlooked by the police. Firearms sold by a registered dealer had to be entered in an official gun dealer's book, together with the name of the buyer. This was so that authorities could check who had bought particular weapons. Amazingly, this simplest of all checks was never done except at a few stores around Shepparton. One short request to police across Victoria would have revealed the name of the first owner of every new Mossberg sold in the state by dealers in the previous decade. From there, each original owner could have been traced and asked where the weapon was. If the rifle was available, it would have to be test-fired. If not, the owner would be asked for his fingerprints. It was simple enough, but those in command didn't think of it. And the cowboy element among the detectives thought that Ian Urquhart was guilty anyway. And so their investigation methods lacked a key element, 
and that was commitment. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. By the end of March 1966, 49 days after the murders, a 1,000 people have been interviewed and scores of suspects have been eliminated, but the police were no closer to a solution than the day they'd started. No one was saying so, but the process of elimination was not narrowing the field so much as widening it. If the killer or killers were not among the most obvious suspects, nor among the second rank of suspects, then who was he or they? There was growing evidence that the murders were random and motiveless. In such circumstances, all the detective work in the world was not worth as much as a little bit of luck. And this time, the luck was all on the side of the killer. For among the thousand wrong tips that the police spoke of was the one lead they so desperately needed but they missed it. It happened sometime after April the 1st, 1966, probably in May or June. The policeman concerned would be unlikely to recall the date afterwards, and if he could, he probably wouldn't tell anyone. If that policeman later remembered what it was that caused him to visit Gorn's farm at Obermona, he never disclosed it, even to colleagues. But it was clear that among the hundreds of letters, telephone calls, and 30 visitors which swamped the police station in 1966, he intercepted one which was never recorded on the master file. It could have been a tip-off about a man known to own a Mossberg or a report of the registration number of a car seen acting suspiciously. Whatever the information was, it clearly identified Gorn's recently departed share farmer because when the policeman went to the farm, he asked for Ray by his full name. When the policeman came out to see Mr Gorn, the farmer took him over to the office and opened up his wages book, ran his finger down the page, and he found the forwarding address that Ray and Leslie had left with him. It said, Care of R. Clark, Sunny Plains, Mayrung, New South Wales. The policeman thanked him casually. We'll get the boys up there to pick him up, he said, and then he left. The Gaunts remembered that Ray had owned a Mossberg rifle and assumed, naturally, that the police wanted to test it. They didn't give the incident another thought for nearly 20 years. If a policeman came to Clark's property at Mayrung, Leslie didn't see him. Neither did the Clarks, who owned the homestead. The probability is that no one pursued the lead that took the policeman out to Gorn's farm. We can only guess at why that would be. The most obvious explanation is that the Shepparton policeman simply forgot to relay his request to, quote, the boys up there, meaning New South Wales police, at either Daniliquin or Finlay. Possibly the incident slipped his mind and nothing was done. A second possibility is that 
The Shepparton man did contact the New South Wales Police, but they ignored the request, which was not all that unusual with interstate policing in those days. Privately, Victorian detectives working on this case often voiced their uneasiness about leaving distant inquiries to interstate police. But there was a third possibility. This is the faint possibility that police did visit Clark's property and after a few questions went away satisfied that they'd been through the motions of routine inquiries. Now, although neither Leslie, that's Ray's wife, nor the Clarks, the owners, saw any sign of police on the place, it's conceivable that Ray could have intercepted them before they reached the house or before they reached the homestead and sent them away content that they'd drawn a blank. The reality is that we'll never know. What we do know is that Ray and Leslie's already fractured marriage was falling apart. They had a very serious row while working at Clark's farm, a row that had been building for a long time. Whatever the argument was, it led to Ray raining punches on her in one of the bedrooms. For Leslie, this was all too familiar. This time, from some part of her subconscious, she found the words to fight back. They came out bitterly. You're sick, you bastard, she said. Why don't you kill me and get it over with? You probably killed those two kids at Shepparton. The accusation hung in the sudden silence. Leslie was shocked by her own outburst, but no more than her husband was. He stopped hitting her and walked away without a word, and he never beat her again. Looking back, Leslie was able to realise that there were other strange things that happened. One was that Ray sold the Red Falcon that he'd bought only 18 months earlier. He was quite proud of this car. It had cost quite a lot of money, but he traded it in on a family station wagon, which was a very different vehicle. At the time, she thought he was trying to do the right thing and get a vehicle that suited the three children. But looking back on it, it seemed to be a way of getting rid of a car that might have been a link with the murders. They have more arguments, more fights. She threatens to leave him. He calls in both sets of parents. In the end, they leave Clark's and they go over to northeastern Victoria. Things don't get any better. For a while, they camp at one set of parents or the other in the northeast. And Ray gets a job for a while at a meatworks at Wodonga, where he has his, interestingly, he has his own set of knives and works on the meat line. He's quite a good butcher. Leslie remembers how he'd stolen and killed one of Gorn's pigs two years earlier and a yearling heifer on another property. And she realises how good he is at using his butcher's knives. He left the job at Wodonga after a while, but he kept the knives. One year after the murders, they moved to another share farm in another remote district, Talandoon, right up in the far northeast corner of Victoria. It was a tranquil setting, but it did nothing to mend their marriage. Ray had begun openly to exhibit tendencies which disgusted and frightened Leslie. His ugly moods and unpredictable violence had become common. 
and frightened her more and more. For her, it was a nightmare. One day she rang her parents from the farm to beg them to come and get her, but when they arrived she was waiting in front of the house. She assured them effusively that everything was all right. It had all been a mistake, she said. She didn't really want to go back to Yarrawonga with them after all. So Leslie's parents drove home, puzzled by their daughter's behaviour. What they didn't know was that Ray had been inside the house holding a shotgun and he'd threatened to use it if Leslie left. On another occasion, when Leslie's father had come out to the place, Ray had threatened him with a shotgun. And so his behaviour was going from bad to worse and from worse to bizarre. Finally, on the night of New Year's Eve, the last hours of 1967, Leslie ran away. This is the first time she ran away. She took off with a guy that she'd met working nearby. And meanwhile, Ray takes the children over to his parents or her parents or both. And he tracks her down. She's camping in a car at Benalla. It was hardly a reconciliation, but Ray persuades her or stands over her. They leave the children with the long-suffering parents and they drive together to Townsville to visit her relatives. Ahead of them was the final act in the drama of their marriage. Ray had always driven fast, but this time he seemed to have a death wish. He drove like a crazy man. Leslie was terrified. She saw that he had a shotgun or in the back of the car. She said, get rid of it, get rid of it, and in the end, to please her, he hocked it for a few dollars at one of the towns they passed through. But still... The tension was building, and at one point in the journey, Leslie grabs a bottle of tranquilizer tablets, tears the lid off, and starts to jam them in her mouth, as if she's going to suicide. Ray's reaction to the suicide attempt was bizarre. Instead of trying to stop her, he shouted that he'd kill himself too. After watching Leslie swallow a handful of tablets, he snatches the jar and shoved the rest down his throat. If it had been a deadlier prescription their bodies would have been found together, but the pills were not lethal. Neither of them died. It just made them very, very sick. The trip did nothing to mend their relationship. How could it? Ray's behaviour was verging on the grotesque. But sometime on the long, fast trip home, Leslie thought about something that he'd told her when they were arguing. He said to her once, You know I'm adopted, don't you? We'll leave it there for now, but next week we'll jump ahead in our story and reveal how this case was solved. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents... We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.